Well, this panel broaches uh, a question that uh, is uh, fundamental, which is the different jars that we have uh, taken to be something that we can call literary, and the different modes of writing within those genres. And we are focusing on three books which exemplify all the problems raised by uh, notions of genre and uh, type of writing. Uh, and I'm going to give you a brief description of those books before inviting their translators and editors to address these questions, because some of these books won't yet have come into your hands and not everybody will have looked at the books that are available. The books are, uh, oh, I didn't introduce myself, Julia Gray, I'm the current Claudian Professor of Arabic here at Oxford. The books are translated and edited by uh, Tim McIntosh-Smith, who cannot be here, and James Montgomery, who is here, two travel books. Uh, one is, in its English rendition, uh, Accounts of China and India, and the other is, uh, in its English rendition, Ibn Fadlan's account of his mission to the Volga. These, although they both come in under the heading of travel writing, are very different. Uh, the first, the accounts of China and India, is accounts. It is a compilation of interesting and, above all, useful information. It does not have a chronological thread or a focus on somebody, one person, who experiences the travel. <coughs> the other book by Ibn Fadlan is quite different. It's an account of a one-off expedition and it is, in many ways, an adventure story. And these two books taken together along with their copious and impressive scholarly annotation and their very thoughtful introductions, bring out the difficulties inherent in the whole notion of travel writing or travel literature, whatever language or whatever culture it occurs in. So I think this is a combination of works which really thrust under the noses of the readers all the uh, inherent um, <coughs> difficulties and rewards of thinking actively about genre and mode of writing. To move on to uh, Consorts of the Caliph, uh, Caliphs, our latest book off the press, which was edited by Shaukat Turawa and was translated by everybody in the room who belongs to the Library of Arabic Literature. Um, this is a book by a historian. A historian who wrote large amounts of history, most of which has now been lost, and who wrote in many different formats and, I suppose you could say, genre. Um, and no doubt, as a historian, he would have considered this book a kind of history. Uh, Modern historians, I think, would probably poo-poo it as a work of history, and I think they would be quite wrong to do so. There is a certain mindset among modern historians of the Middle East which is extremely insensitive to questions of genre and mode, and which thereby jettisons an awful lot of vital intellectual as well as cultural history. 
intellectual history in the sense that Joe Lowry was talking about, people confront problems and they try, if not to solve them, at any rate, to do something worthwhile with them. And that is very much what Ibn Sa'i is doing in his book on consorts <coughs> of the caliphs. Uh, and in that sense, although it looks something of a trifle in terms of its the number of pages in it, it is a very fascinating uh, intellectual engagement with very diverse material and very diverse purposes for the writing of history. Finally, our third uh, generic uh, or genre problem text is um, Beatrice Grindler's edition and translation of Akbar Abitaman, which she has translated, this very difficult word, Akbar, a sort of portmanteau word, um, as the life and times of Abitaman. So you'll all be sitting back and rubbing your hands and saying, ah, oh, a biography, and we will be finding out all about the relationship between the man and the works. Well, to some extent you do, but to some extent you don't. So what is a biography? This is certainly meant, it is focused on a person and his poetry, but is it a biography? Is it even life writing? What kinds of problems are central to the impulse that made Asuli write it, or that invited Asuli's patron, made Asuli's patron invite him to write it? So now I leave the editor translators to address these issues. Uh, good morning everyone. Uh, I am James Montgomery, the uh, Sir Thomas Adams is Professor of Arabic at, at Cambridge. Um, I'm here as both myself and as Tim McIntosh-Smith, who unfortunately couldn't join us because he couldn't get out of Yemen. Um, but when we, hear, we have been hearing from him, so uh, he seems uh, uh, to be well. Um, I'm also one of the executive editors uh, of the Library of Arabic Literature, so we have our general editor, Philip Kennedy, and Shokat Turaba and myself uh, are the executive editors, which means effectively that we do most of the graft, uh, and we give all the credit to our esteemed leader. Um, and of course, we also have an editorial board, um, all of whom, with the exception of Tahir Akutbuddin, uh, are with us today. Um, now, there's one other thing that I think I should say that's kind of polemical, but I am, by virtue of birth, position and training, an Orientalist. Uh, and um, not many of us are honest about that. Uh, and so I just leave that out there, uh, because it is perhaps something of a subtext to uh, some of the discussions that we'll be having today. Uh, I want to talk, I'm very interested in the history of unintended consequences. And I think the Library of Arabic Literature is largely a project of unintended consequences. And this book that I worked on is also an example of unintended consequences. We wanted Tim McIntosh Smith to do a book for us. And he suggested the Akbar Sin Wal Hind, the accounts of uh, uh, China and India. But we knew immediately that it wouldn't be long enough to produce a paperback, because we're also a very pragmatic project, right? The Arabic's on the wrong side of the page because it's a pragmatic solution to a very difficult epistemological problem. And as a Scot, I love pragmatism. Uh, so my answer to all of, a lot of these things is, it is the way it is because that was the quickest way to solve it at the time. We have 75 books to do 
in 10 years, that's an awful lot of books. We could sit around for five years debating this and reach no conclusion. Uh, so again, a pragmatic solution. Um, so the unintended consequence was that we, Tim wanted to do this book. We were desperate for him to do it. Uh, it's a fantastic, fantastic uh, 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 translation that he's produced. Delicacy of touch, insight, um, uh, a, a sort of charming uh, uh, way of, of engaging with material seriously. It's not, oh, here's this guy who was an armchair traveler who listened to a lot of sailors, and I'm just going to sort of render it into perfunctory English. Tim entered into the sort of spirit of the text. But one of the other things about the library, of course, is that the three of us in particular, Shilkit, Phil, and I, do a lot of traveling because we need to meet face to face. You can't run a project like this uh, via Skype. And one of the blessings of the project is that Phil has a home in Corsica. So we decided that rather than have Phil fly 15 hours to New York and Shilkit travel four miles from his small university in upstate New York to New York City, and me travel seven, mile, seven hours there, rather, we would actually all convene in Corsica uh, for uh, three or four days. And we were sitting out in this wonderful place in Aleria. It's a beautiful house. Um, and uh, the sun was shining. We were thinking, how are we going to solve this problem? We've got a text that's not going to be big enough for a book. And I think Shulkit said, Ibn Fadlan. And I said, no, we can't do Ibn Fadlan. Because after the Quran, after the Arabian Nights, it is the single most translated work into European languages from Arabic. And we are supposed to be doing new things, not old things. Uh, and they said, oh, you know, pragmatic solutions. We need a book. You've already translated this uh, uh, Ibn Fadlan. You've posted it free on the internet. Why can't we just use that? Huh? And I said, right, okay, right. So uh, let's do it that way. <laughs> of course, when I went to the translation, which I uh, uh, had published online, um, I realized, and one of the things that's interesting about Lal is it actually distorts a lot of things. So in many ways it distorts the Arabic, and in many ways it distorts the English. Because the emphasis on readability is a distortion. Um, and I was very, very conscious of this as I was grappling with this um, uh, original version, this original translation I had done, where I was very keen to express the oddness, the strangeness, the weirdness of Ibn Fadlan's text through a form of English that was much closer to Arabic than it was to English. But the library doesn't allow me to do that because of its emphasis on lucid, readable English. So then I thought, value added is really important to this book. Uh, I have to give something that the other translators uh, haven't given the book. Uh, two English translations had appeared uh, five years, I think, uh, previously. 2010 or so, um, and they're both good works, uh, so what am I going to do? Uh, and I thought, I'm going to present this as an adventure story. I think it's a lot, lot more than that, but in order to achieve the library type of translation, I had to simplify, to reduce, to distill, and to distort. Um, the best example of that is the title. I wanted The Volga Mission, as if it was a Robert Ludlum novel. <laughs> <laughs> but, but my colleague said, no, 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 come on, you're getting carried away, calm down, go back to a pragmatic solution. And uh, we came up with Mission to the Volga. Um, the, the thing in Arabic is just Kitab Ahmad ibn Fadlan, the, the writing, the book, the account. Um, but because I had made this decision about how I was going to present this work, 
then a whole lot of other consequences that I hadn't foreseen on that sunny afternoon in the when I agreed to do this uh, have become reality. Now, the one thing that we actually did consciously do was that we, we kept myself and Tim uh, sort of out of communication. We didn't communicate with each other uh, in the course of this. Tim was edited by Phil and I was edited by Shulka. And although we met regularly, I don't recall any instance of a conversation about the book whatsoever because we wanted to achieve what Julia has just very, very perceptively uh, identified, and that is the, the sort of plurivocality of the tradition. On the one hand, a set of accounts. On the other hand, the first and most extensive and most astonishing first-person narrative in Arabic. Uh, and the reviews that have been coming in uh, 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 of the book have been rather bemused by <coughs> this um, uh, lack of, of, of as were, editorial oversight. But it was editorial oversight because that was the effect that we wanted to produce. Because despite all the things I've said about distortion, I think that aspect of it actually is true to the tradition. So I've, I've said enough. Thank you. I'm still Shaka Chirao and I'm still from Cornell. <laughs> and I'm one of those rare Oriental Orientalists. <laughs> uh, it's supposed to be a workshop, so I'm not sure how much we're workshopping, so I'm going to try and say very little to give a bit of time at the end, assuming the timekeeper and the timekeeper's daughter uh, are happy. Uh, say three, three things, and none of them are answers to the questions Julia posed, which is in keeping with my personality. So the first is that uh, Phil Kennedy approached me one day in New York uh, we were walking in the park, and he said, I have this idea, and I want to know what you think. And so he said, you know, uh, I'm thinking of putting together this project proposal, and, uh, you know, why don't we do something like this? And I said, you're mad. You know, I mean, you're out of your mind, but uh, sign me on. You know? And um, one of the conversations that followed was how he was going to produce a grant proposal to um, make it attractive to the people who were going to consider funding this. And um, for a reason that's still not clear to me, uh, he seized on this text because he asked me at one point, you know, what kind of text should I say are examples, right? I'm going to write this proposal and I'm going to say, we will, for example, <laughs> translate and edit. And, uh, you know, we will come up, you know, it should not be, so people who are the equivalents of Shakespeare and Milton, you know, uh, whatever, and people, people of stature, people in the canon. Um, and then he said, well, yeah, but, you know, I want to make it clear to the funders that it's going to be, you know, larger, it's going to be better, it's going to be, he didn't use these terms, but it's going to be a corpus, right? It's not going to be a canon or the canon, I think probably be a corpus, not the canon, I think it's probably more accurate, right? Um, and um, so I happen to say, oh, you know, well, Joe, Devin, and I have been working, and Michael, have been working on this translation of this very slim little text. It's very short. The reason it's short is because we chose a short text. So the reason we chose it is because it's short. Uh, and uh, Joe said to us one day, why don't we all translate this together? It's really cool, it's about women. And, um, and they're all concubines. And, um, and so it's unusual and it'll be a good intervention. And so I mentioned to him, and Phil, because he's uh, the amazing person he is, put it into the grant proposal. And there's a little footnote that says, for example, little known texts such as Ibn Sa'i's Nisal Khulafa. This is part of, of the pitch. And then one day, um, it dawned on him and on all of us uh, in, a, in, a, the gar in a garden at a hotel we were staying at, that we should probably make good on the things we said in our proposal. <laughs> uh, and so, um, 
it, and, but it also became clear that it was in many ways an ideal text because it was generically different, right? Uh, not only is it generically different from what we had done so far and what we had been planning, but it's also internally very unusual. Uh, so all I'll say is that um, there's a section that relies uh, heavily on an earlier Abbasid um, um, mythical history or, 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 or history, uh, mention of uh, people who are sometimes regarded as the golden, uh, from the golden age, even though it's a problematic term, and then it has much more recent material. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's unusual and, 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 and repays close attention. So uh, the, the, the book has a history within the, the project and has... Um, because it has that history, we decided as a group, and also because it's short, as I mentioned that it was short, um, uh, that it might be a good example of a work that we could work on together, not exactly as a manifesto, but as a way of saying, this is what we think, this is how we feel about the tradition, about it editing, about translating, about collaboration, uh, and about um, uh, it, taking something otherwise little known and making it part of the conversation, right? So maybe this should be a, a conversation, neither a corpus nor a canon, right? Uh, which is why it says on it, edited by Shokadem Tarawa, translated by the, the editors of the Library of Arabic Literature, introduction by Julia Bray, forward by Marina Warner. This is very important to us. It drove our managing editor, Chip Rossetti, crazy. He said, how many things do you need us to put on the front cover? And this is a practical question. Because his colleagues at NYU Press said, well, what does this mean? But we thought, no, it's important to be able to say to both the Arabist community and the potential lay English reader that there are many ways of doing this work. There are many models. For example, one of our cherished titles is um, edited and translated by two scholars, uh, Hertan van Gelder and Gregor Scholler. And um, although that was actually, the reason they both do it is because we, could, we told one that the other was agreeable and we told the other that the other one was agreeable and they did it. But, but what we tell the world is, you see, even senior, amazing, orientalist scholars will collaborate with each other in producing something, right? That we want to we want to make it clear that it, this doesn't devalue a text; it adds value. And I think James's point about value added is is key. And one of the ob objectives of the Library of Arabic Literature is to say, how do you bring scholarship and uh, empathy and attachment to this? We all, I mean, it goes without saying, but every person who has signed on to this albatross around our neck, anchor, ball and chain on us project because it has completely dominated our lives. And I'm here at the pleasure of my wife, because it's yet, yet another Library of Arabic Literature commitment. Um, we're all deeply, deeply enamored of this tradition. We're not just, it's, it's not just what we do, it's what we live and breathe. And that's, I think, really important as well. You know, no one's gonna get tenure writing a book where everything is diluted. No one is gonna become famous. I'm not gonna become famous. I'm one of, of 10, 12 people that's been involved. But it's more important to me to be able to say that I and others who are like-minded have sat around a table in Aleria and sat around a table in New York City and sat around a table in the hallowed halls of uh, All Souls College. I, I, I assume there are hallowed halls as well. Um, and, um, and gotten together and said, we're going to do this. I mean, working together with Julia on this, who is a much more expert on this kind of material than I am, was just a, a pleasure and, um, and something I want to just keep doing. 
till I die. I'm a, they might kill me, so that might. Be. <laughs> uh, uh, but you know, saying to her, you know, do you think this word? You know, what do you think this word means? Do you think we should say this? And then running some of it by Joe emailed me one point and said, I know you guys are working on it because she's your project editor and you've taken kind of charge. But can I see it? Of course. Sent it to him. Made all kinds of corrections. I won't tell you what Julia said to one of his comments about the poetry. <laughs> uh, but this this spirit of all being in it together, as opposed to sort of being the so, so I, what I'd like to I'd like to make one. Um, amendment to what, John, uh, uh, what James has said, it's not that we are Orientalists, it's that we're collaborating Orientalists, right? I mean, and that is a new thing. It is a new, it's a new day. And so we sit around and we say, 12 of us, because we've expanded the board now, are going to decide what the next book should be, not one of us, right? Phil doesn't say, let's do that book, somebody does. Um, and but then we say no. And, uh, and we say, all right, what do we think? What, what does everyone think? Uh, what does the community think? What do external reviewers think? Right? So it's a very large project. It is not, it's the vision of one man, but it's not the, the, the product of a small group of people who've decided that they know what the corpus is or they know what the canon is. It really is trying to embrace as large a community of, of people who are enamored of the tradition as possible. And if you have any questions, I'm happy to refer you to my colleagues. <laughs> The Life and Times of Abu Tanan. Okay. Um, by the way, I will get on. You need to um, come here because the things are shining on your face. <coughs> Sorry. Okay. But I need my clock, otherwise my chin will tell me. I cannot take credit for The Life and Times, which um, has been suggested to me by a number of my editors, the identity of which sometimes was a mystery. And at first I was a little bit puzzled by that translation for the Arabic word Akhbar, which, you know, translates very boringly otherwise. And I have to say I've gotten used to it, and now I actually like it. Uh, it functions very well. And um, Julie said something about confronting problems. Well, one problem is that um, the kind of literature I usually spend my time with, panegyric poetry, is utterly unappealing. It is very complicated, it is very old-fashioned, it is interested, it praises somebody, and it's paid. Uh, therefore, it doesn't really qualify as art. So I've always tried, number one, to understand it, that took a little while. On the other hand, to show that it actually is art. And the people who composed it, and the people who read it, and the people who paid for it, quite a lot in the golden age, uh, thought so too. But that needs to be brought across, and that's not always easy because of Arabic, in which this is written, composed, performed, is not easy even for people who know Arabic quite well. And um, to translate it is even a bigger problem because it doesn't translate well either. Um, there we were problems. Uh, the book itself is a Russian doll of different things, and that's uh, why I thought it would be a useful book to translate. It has a number of genres, so kind of genres, in it. And I start from the little to the big. The little is, it has those, those nuggets, um, those pieces of vocabulary one needs to know when one um, reads Arabic poetry to understand what is actually meant. So it's a full moon, but it really means beautiful face. So until you have all that vocabulary at your fingertips, you, you actually don't, you read the English, but you don't understand it. So those nuggets, those motifs, are 
they become clear just by reading um, the quotations of the poetry in the book. But then they're put into <coughs> poetry together, so you, you get you know the whole poems. Though they are, like in a film, they sort of cut to pieces and dramatically abbreviated. So you only read the good parts of the poems. The rest you sort of know is there, but you're not bothered with it. So the editor has an editor from the 10th century who put this book together. But then the poems are inside stories. And that shows you the whole thing, what is actually going on? Why bother? Why bother with this poetry? Well, it was very important politically. It got people out of prison, it got debts paid, it got all sorts of practical things, but was very high art. And the stories explain that to you. They give a life to the poetry, and then you understand why you're trying to understand them. And um, that is the level of the stories. That's why this is the life and times, although there's no chronology, and it's not the psychological development of Abu Tamam. No, it's glimpses from the outside that you get, little facets, mosaic pieces. But somebody's collected all of this together, because why? Well, it was the hottest thing that moved at the time in Baghdad in the 9th century. People were bashing each other um, about uh, how terrible this poetry is and what an awful invention, and then other people um, championed the previous style. So there was a hot debate going on about whether this was good poetry or not, and that makes it interesting. A uh, hundred years later, the debate was still lukewarm, but not quite forgotten. Um, a compiler put all of this together. So you read two time um, tracks at the same time. You read the debate is in full blow. And then you read the comments of um, the compiler who added all this together, Suli. And he then comments because he's very opinionated. And he himself has a pleasure to read. Uh, and that is the beginning of yet another genre, namely poetics. How do you criticize? this kind of poetry. How do you do that? And at this time, it wasn't yet quite figured out. So it's still um, a debate that's going on, and therefore much more enjoyable to read than the more clear and systematic poetics that we have later. Uh, nothing speaks better than an example. And um, I'll read you just one story. I have two, but I don't think I have time for one. Or maybe I will. One. <laughs> The Prophet Umar ibn Aqil came to Baghdad and people flocked to him. They recorded his poetry, studied it with him, and showed him their own poetry for comment. One day someone said, there's a poet who some claim is the very best, while others claim the opposite. Umar said, recite some of his verse to me. So they recited the following. Now I'm abbreviating a little bit, I'm skipping some piece of the poem. Um, the reciter gives two or three verses, and then the poet Omara, the arbiter, says, more, 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 more. It goes on for a while until the reciter stopped again, and Omara said, let's have more. So he continued. Quote. So um, the poem goes, but I possess no amassed wealth to call my own just a few scattered things. Nor did the days grant me restful slumber to enjoy only slumber chaste. Excellent, said Omar. Your poet has outdone all previous poets who use this motif, however much has been composed with it, to the point of making exile appealing. <laughs> Go on, so the reciter continued. 
If a man lingers too long at home, it shows on his face, so travel and refresh it. People like the sun more, I know, for not shining upon them per perpetually. <coughs> Absence makes the heart go fonder. Omara said, by God, he's perfect. If good wording, beautiful motifs, sustained intent, and balanced speech constitute true poetry, then this point of view is the very best. And if poetry is something else, well, then I just don't know. So to summarize in the story, you get a piece of the poetry that is not easy to understand, so you can go through it, what the motifs are, um, the etiology with the sun, the explanation. Um, you, you have a situation, how poetry was actually performed. Uh, in the Abbasid period, you sort of sit next to it, um, how this is happening. And then you, you get the comment of an older poet, Omar ibn Aqil, about this new poet. So you have practical criticism that is happening. And in the end, although he's a poet, he's not a poetician yet, he's explaining what his standards of criticism are. So in a nutshell, in a little time capsule, you get a lot of information about the social history of poetry. Thank you. We have time, actually. Ten minutes for questions and answers. Yay. I want to jump in, because I because I was involved in consorts, it was fascinating your panel. But I, I wanted you to say a little bit, one of you to say something about the fact that there are a lot of women poets in the consorts. And if you perhaps could explain the setting of a woman poet um, reciting, because that's what features so strongly and surprisingly in the consorts. I was not part of the concerts, no, no. Um, but um, I like when I hear anything about women, and there is, there is one example here. Uh, the example I skipped, uh, this people <coughs> fight a lot over one particular verse um, that was, uh, on the day he died, it's a lamentation of a general. On the day he died, the Banunab Han were like the stars of the sky from whose midst the full moon had fallen. That verse is fought over a lot. One general says, I wish you'd say that about me because a man, low so lamented, has not died. One end. Then the critics jump on the verse and say, no, it's, it's a wrong motif. He should have said, the next full moon is coming up. He has blamed the person. And then Asuli traces and traces and traces. And the first person who actually has come up with that is Safi al-Bahiliya. So Abu Tamam is shining, blamed, praised for a verse that ultimately goes back to a pre-Islamic poetess. And that's the beauty of, um, of a Suli, to dig all of this out. And uh, not really, he puts in some or other pre-Islamic um, female poet. Mm -hmm. So we don't forget that they were important at the time. Yeah. Well, the poetry that we have in Consorts of the Caliphs is one very period-specific kind of women's poetry. And it belongs to a very elaborate culture in which lots and lots of luxury objects are produced and traded and among those luxury objects are highly trained uh, in literature, music and things of the intellect generally, women slaves. Um, the kind of poetry that they produce is specific to a 
situation which is one of wealth, uh, leisure. It's a situation that has really only been analysed in a superficial and anecdotal way, I think, by modern scholarship and which we are beginning to dig into a lot more. And from the point of view of literary history, the uh, kinds of things that a woman poet can produce, is expected to produce, or perhaps sometimes contrastingly, does produce in a situation where she is meant to be entertaining, witty, uh, and able to respond uh, as a virtuoso to any situation. That's one thing. But the other thing that is uh, more deeply fascinating, but of course embedded in the poetry and embodied by the poetry, is what is a person and what is freedom and what is moral authority, uh, whether the person in question is regarded as uh, having agency which confers moral authority or having <coughs> some other quality that confers it. And all this is focused in the poetry and the ability to produce the poetry, which is really the raison d'etre of these women. It is what keeps them going, it is what keeps them valued, and it is ultimately what translates one set of values into, in some cases, a different and more durable and more humane set of values. You stop being a concubine and you become a uh, person of much greater autonomy and uh, authority. So that's, that's the poetry that we find in Consorts of the Caves. Some of it. Some of it's written by bad girls. Can I ask a question about um, what James said about... Uh, I'm John Paul Gabriel. I'm a fellow here at This point about distortion, which I, which I want to hear more about your anxieties about distortion and whether there's things you worry about. Because I'm thinking now of what Julia just said about the sort of period, contextual, specific nature of some of these works. And is there anything that worries you about what happens when they get I'm going to give a very small, trivial example, uh, which may or may not answer the question. Uh, and this is Shokat responding to it rather than James. Sorry, yeah. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. no. I, I was inviting my learned colleagues. That's what I thought you were doing with your glance. I, just do, I do whatever Phil and James say, so I immediately kicked in. But I, but I defer to the chair, though. I mean, I think you should decide who should answer. Okay. So, um, often, as I'm sure you know, uh, someone will say uh, something like, oh, commander of the faithful, right? Uh, Amir Mu'minin or something. And you have all, this, all these, um, these, these expressions because it's considered culturally appropriate or inappropriate not to address, uh, right? You can't exclude the form of address, right? So they're talking to each other and you keep getting, oh, commander of the faithful, oh, commander of the faithful. Uh, setting aside the question of whether commander of the faithful is even a defensible translation, right, of Amir Mu'minin, um, we decided to just say sire in here, right? We said, uh, you know, thank you, sire. And we thought this was much more appropriate. And the conversation that took place, and remember, this was group translated. So it wasn't just a conversation between me and Julia, which is what it would normally be, or between me and James, or between Phil and Joe, or whatever. It was a whole bunch of us. And we thought, well, yeah, it doesn't say sire, you know, Robin Hood. You know, <laughs> you know we're thinking about all these things. But then the, the ultimate, I mean, we were, Julia was the ultimate decider. Uh, 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 with the two of us together, but we decided that it actually 
in distorting, restored the tenor and the tone of that uh, dialogue. Because when you read the whole dialogue, if you isolate it, you can say, well, this doesn't make sense. But when you read all of it and you just go back and forth, um, I mean, it's maybe not a great example, but it is one of the ways in which a distortion, and I would call that a distortion, right, um, has helped the English reader, right, make sense of the dialogue. But remember, we have, uh, no one said this yet explicitly, but we are liberated by the presence of the Arabic text on the left. Right? Anyone who can read the Arabic can go to it and say, oh, Amir al-Mu'mineen, they've decided to do that. I think it's a terrible idea. That's fine. Right? <laughs> but, but at least for the English-only reader, the Anglophone reader, there's a way that we've been able to introduce him into a text that is not completely um, uh, uh, inscrutable. Right? Because it's not just, it's fine to not want to domesticate it too much, but you don't want it to be utterly inscrutable. I mean, even that O, you know, which is a really problematic a, a, a letter uh, in the language uh, when we when we say, say things like you know oh Bunan how you know you know your glory shineth or whatever so um, you know so we sometimes for example move the, addre the address later like you know your glory shines Bunan for example right so we've got the address still in but it is in fact a distortion. Shoka, can I go back to John Paul's question because I think it was actually something rather different, wasn't it, that you were asking about. Uh, anxiety. The anxiety. Yes, you... There was some anxiety there. Yes. It was partly about yeah, folding texts that emerge in, in very different contexts. Um, what happens when you place them alongside each other ah. in, in a corpus? And I mean, I think the, the sort of minor, the minor the issue here about sort of what happens with specific decisions is part of that. And then there's the larger issue of um, taking texts from very different places and linking them by virtue of the language. What, 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 what is James worried about, if anything? Uh, uh, about yeah, so what makes me anxious? Poetry. We haven't spoken about it yet, except tangentially through uh, Beatrice's uh, uh, book, which uh, contains a large amount of, uh, the, uh, of poetry by Abu Tamam, easily one of the most difficult. Uh, Arabic poets, and how do you somehow respect the thing that makes it fantastic in Arabic that is going to make it crazy in English? Um, and uh, uh, we have reached the end of uh, our five years, um, and we have, in a sense, uh, uh, talked around and thought about uh, how generally to 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 confront this, this question of, of the translation of Arabic poetry. Our pragmatic solution uh, is that what, one of the things we've been doing regularly is not only sort of group translating the, 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 the consorts of the caliphs, but um, a, a group translating um, uh, the, the poetry of a pre-Islamic poet, Antar ibn Shaddad. Um, and Sometimes we split up into different groups. There may be two or three people that work on it, and uh, sometimes we have people who happen to be in Abu Dhabi or New York at the time, and we invite them along. Uh, and we have we've kept the, the, the translations in the record uh, uh, of this. And uh, over the summer, I think it's my job to, to sort of prepare that for publication. Now, this will be uh, a volume which uh, doesn't show how to translate Arabic poetry, but it will simply make the translation of Arabic poetry into English 
the problematic at the centre of it, and there will be uh, uh, 30, 35 different ways of trying to uh, uh, solve this, this, not solve, but engage with, with this. So that's the one thing that uh, uh, makes me uh, intellectually anxious, but productively anxious. And, and we've had fantastic support from uh, Richard Seaberth at NYU, um, who, uh, along with Peter Cole, came uh, to an early meeting of the Library of Arabic Literature and gave us a workshop in how not to do it. So I think we've got a good idea of how not to do it. Although sometimes the, the habits that you're given that uh, uh, when, you're, when you're educated and trained, you, oh, commander of the faithful is a classic example. You cannot get away from it. One of the hardest things we did as a group in our second meeting was to take as many pious phrases as we could find and find English equivalents for them. They're all freely available in their handbook uh, uh, on, the, uh, um, on the web. But that took us, I think, two to three days. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Right? Go and pray over him and give him peace. Like, what does that mean in English? Right? Uh, so, the, those things, the things that, 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 that your education gives you the escalator answer to, get from A to Z as quickly as possible without thinking about it, then become sort of sclerotic reflexes. Uh, and so, that's one thing that we've, uh, we've been engaging with. The other thing that makes me anxious about the project uh, is that... Um, there are not enough people out there in the world yet who can do this, right? 50 years ago, everyone would know how to edit a text. Not many people do now. So there's a kind of disciplinary uh, aspect to this where we're trying to keep those traditions alive and, and through the, 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 the project show their, their value. Um, and often we pair people who can edit with, with people who can translate and so on. Um, so the state of my field is the biggest source of anxiety for me. And I, I, I think I have a lot of uh, uh, um, anxiety invested in the library. It will not solve the problems in the field, but it will at least draw attention to the fact that um, the people that we train nowadays can do 110,000 million things that I could never do as a graduate student. But none of them can edit a text. That's sad. That makes me sad. So, those are my examples. I, I just wanted to pick up on one or two points that perhaps are more responsive to your question. One of the things that uh, we've got in this um, translation of this poet is that some of the poetry, the expert tells us, is authentic and some of it is spurious. And how do you tackle that in your translation? So the spurious poetry is probably much later. It's a kind of romantic reimagining of this savage and bloody poet, which, which smooths him out considerably. And how does the translator convey this? And uh, the anxiety of, under the tutelage of um, Richard, who is a most tactful uh, critic, that sometimes laughter is the best form of criticism. <laughs> um, uh, we we realised that if poetry has to be translated by people who are not poets, then it is no good trying to be poetic in any of our rather sort of simplistic uh, ways of thinking what is poetry and how, how do you make it sound like poetry. Um, so this brings us up against a very fundamental question, which is that you, your translations is as, are as good as you are. Uh, all translations are the product of a person's abilities. And if a translation needs doing, you just do it as well as you can. 
And that, I think, is one of the fundamental things about our project and one of the things that we want to represent to the people who fund or pay for academic research. Uh, just as people used to be able to edit texts and it was part of their job and it was recognised and rewarded, so people used to translate and it was recognised as a scholarly activity and rewarded, which in many Western universities it no longer is. And by our massive collective investment in this, we want to try and reinstate it as a scholarly activity and get people given time to do it and rewards for doing it. So um, the anxieties that we feel about the rashness of a lot of what we are doing and the distortions that we may be bringing to the material that we are putting under one umbrella because this is what we can do or what we feel needs doing, uh, they're not just focused on the corpus itself, they're focused on what is in some ways an even larger enterprise. Great. Well, thank you very much. Thank you.